The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right. Well, good evening. Welcome to Revive Service. How's everyone doing? Well, I'm, uh, I'm Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, Pastor Daniel uh, had asked a couple of us pastors to fill in for him for the month of August, um, and uh, you know, I said yes, um, so I'm privileged to be up here tonight to bring uh, the word to you, and um, you know, I said yes, and then when I saw the advertisement you know, before service, it said, all-time greatest hits. You know, so there was a lot of pressure I felt. I, you know, just thinking like, am I supposed to bring my best sermon ever? And I was thinking, okay, Lord, what, what do you want to share? And is it going to be my best sermon? I don't know. And as I was kind of thinking about what, you know, the Lord wanted to, you know, speak tonight, um, I remember what somebody once said to me that, that stuck with me. And uh, it went something like this. He said that you will always find a better preacher, meaning that you're always going to find somebody who can, you know, articulate better, communicate better, maybe exegete the word of God better, or somebody that you can just receive from. Um, so you'll always find a better preacher, but you will never find a better subject to preach. So in that context, you know, I think I'm going to give my best sermon tonight because it's going to be on the best subject that is known to man as we open up God's word tonight and we really look at the Father's heart. So, uh, all-time greatest hits. For tonight, um, you know, I think, I think I want to take a stab since uh, the series is called All-Time Greatest Hits. I want to take a stab at trying to answer life's all-time greatest question. And that's kind of a big, big undertaking. Um, but I think... Uh, if I'm able to answer your life's greatest question tonight, you would probably be pretty happy, right? You would probably walk out these doors feeling very good. So that's what we're going to try tonight. Um, but let's, let's commit our time to the Father. So Father, we just come before you tonight, God. We want to thank you, Lord, for um, well, just the place where we're, we're able to come and gather together as your children, Father, your church, and uh, we, we just come with open hands, Lord, open hearts, open ears, because we want to receive all that you would have to speak to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is alive, that it's active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray, God, that you would just instruct us, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would correct us in those areas that we need correction, Father, and that you would equip us you know, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you would have for us, Lord. So, you know, just be glorified tonight in this place as we open up your word and we, we meet with you and we hear from you, Jesus. So we thank you for this time and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So life's all-time greatest question. That's a pretty big one. I mean, you know, I think many of you have your own life's all-time greatest question, and really that question varies based on the season of life that you're in, you know, the circumstances that are around you. If you, if you go out and you ask 10 different people, they don't have to be Christians, just 10 people, what is your life's greatest question? You're probably going to get 10 different answers. 
You know, that's because, you know, we're all in different seasons of life. We're all in different stages of life. And, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's somebody in here tonight or listening in on the radio or the, you know, online service that, you know, maybe some of your friends have, they've all gotten married. They moved, they have their first apartment or they bought their first home and they're starting to have kids. And you're sitting here and your, your life's greatest question is, man, who am I going to marry? Right? When, when am I going to get married? When is my life going to start? You know, I, I've dated, I, I've met a few people, and, you know, one relationship was going good. I thought we were going to, you know, kind of get towards marriage, but it just never worked out. You know, when is life going to start for me? You know, there might be others in here that, you know, you're, you're about to graduate high school, and, and your life's greatest question is, what college should I go to? You know, or even bigger than that, maybe what should I study? What should I major? I don't know what I want to do with my life. You know, and I want to, I'm going to spend the next four years studying for something. I want to make sure that this is what I want to do. Or, or if you're about to graduate college, you've spent the four years, you know, maybe from an early age, you wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. So you went to school, you spent four years and, and you got your degree in liberal studies or elementary education and your life's all-time greatest question right now is, what am I going to spend the next 35-plus years of my life committed to? What line of work am I going to enter? Am I going to be fulfilled? Am I going to be satisfied? Am I going to be contented? Is this going to provide for my needs? Or maybe, am I going to hate that job? Am I going to wake up in the morning dreading going to work because I hate this job? That's a valid question. And, and you're seeking God's wisdom and direction in your life for this. I, I mean, you don't want to make a wrong turn, right? You don't want to marry the wrong person. You know, maybe there's others in here that, you know, high school was a long time ago for you. And maybe you're at the season of life where, you know, your greatest question is about your child. Maybe you have a wayward child, you know, and, and the question that you have is, you know, I raised my child in the church. They came, you know, to church. They came to Sunday school. They loved youth group. They loved high school camp. Um, you know, our, our, our home was a safe place that we honored Jesus. And, you know, they met some of their best friends at church, but now they're off at college and they find themselves trapped in the world. They find themselves, you know, wanting nothing to do with Jesus. And life's all-time greatest question for you is, will my child be okay? Will they find their way back to Jesus before it's too late, before something tragic happens? And all these are very, very important real-life questions, no doubt about it. They need to be bathed in prayer and they, they, they really need the wisdom from above to, to walk through, to help answer. So your life's all-time greatest questions will change depending on the season that you're in, depending on your circumstances, depending on what's going on in your life. It's going to ebb and flow based on your situation. But one thing is sure, and that's as a Christian, as a believer, as a person that's filled with the Holy Spirit of God, we have a life's all-time greatest question that transcends whatever season of life that we find ourselves in. 
It's the same regardless of what is going on in the world. There's a lot of stuff that's going on in the world. If you look at the news, I mean, you're, you get afraid of what's going to take place. If you have little kids, you get afraid of what the world's going to look like in 10 to 15 years. When they're a teenager, they're becoming an adult. But we have the same life's all-time greatest question, and we want to find the answer to that question. And, you know, it may take some time for some believers to find the answer to that question. And sadly, there are some Christians that will never find the answer to life's greatest question. So what is this life's all-time greatest question? Well, it's been said that there are three life questions, three big life questions that if you poll a group of people, not just Christians, but humans in general, humanity, if you poll them, what are, what are some life's big questions that you have? And there's three pretty common ones. The first one goes like this. Where did we come from? You know, that's, that's a pretty big question, right? A lot of us, you know, as believers, we, we know the answer to that question now, but, but before you were a believer, or maybe you have friends that are not believers, and, and they're wrestling with that question, where did we come from? I mean, how did this all start? You look around, and there's, there's order, there's relationship, there's love, there's, did this all just happen? And, and there's, there's a couple of different answers out there, right? You know, some, some answers, you know, we started from a cosmic goo <laughs> that blew up and, and created order, you know, and that doesn't really logically make any sense. But, but we as Christians, we know the, the answer to that question, right? We can go back to the word of God, the truth, and we can open up into the first book of the Bible, Genesis, the book of the beginnings, and we can read about the creation story where there was nothing and God spoke everything into existence by the very word of his mouth. And he made man. The second question is another question that a lot of people wrestle with. Is there life after death? Is there life after death? What happens when you die? What happens to the billions of people that have died before? Where are they at? And there's a couple of different answers to that one as well. People think that we just don't exist anymore, right? We, 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 there's annihilation. But for us, again, where do we turn to to find the answer to that question? It's the Word of God. We look to the Bible. And, and you, look, you could look to the, the most popular verse known to man, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So we know that there is life after death. We know that there's going to be a place for those that trust in Jesus. It's a place called heaven that he is preparing for us. But the third question is a question that many of us don't have the answer to. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, the third question that was asked is what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? As Christians, we know where life began. We know if there's life after death. But this third question, you know, I don't think many of us know fully what that answer is. What is my purpose here on earth? What, what, why did God create me? And that's, that's really life's all-time greatest question that we're going to look at today. today. And, and, and I think I have the answer 
And I can tell you guys that answer. It's you open up God's word. And, and, and in the epistle of Colossians that write, Paul writes to, to the church in Colossae, he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things have been created through him. So where did we come from? Right? God, God made us. All things have been created through him and for him. So what was I created for? What is the meaning of life? We have been created for him. We've been created for God. That's what Paul just writes. In other words, we have been created to worship him. That's our relationship with the Father. We worship him. Last Wednesday night, I don't know how many of you guys were here, but we had our um, revive worship night. It was it was truly a beautiful night. It was probably one of the most powerful nights for me, you know, attending our worship nights was last Wednesday night, you know, um, led by Pastor Jimmy and Kayla and Bentley and Isaac Stone were here. And it was truly, I mean, just to be transparent with you, I, I hardly ever cry. And last, last Wednesday night, I, I cried, you know. God just brought tears, and, you know, it was, it was really um, during a time when Isaac Stone was singing a song, you know, and he was kind of leading this song, and at the end of this song, you know, he just started singing, you know, it wasn't scripted, you know, just from his heart, you know, worshiping the Father, and, you know, it was beautiful. It was so genuine, and, and I was sitting in the back there, and I just, you know, I just broke down in tears, you know, and... Um, just seeing the church um, coming together to worship the Lord. It was such a beautiful, beautiful sight. The Spirit of God was moving for sure. Um, but at the same time, it kind of got me thinking. You know, we have worship nights the first Wednesday night of every single month. So that means we have 12 worship nights here at Maranatha Chapel. So does that mean that we only fulfill our created purpose, which is to worship 12 days a year? when we come in to worship? You know, I hope not. If I was made to worship, if I was created to worship, I want to worship God every single second of every single day, but you're not going to find me in Target on a Saturday in the middle of the aisle with my hands lifted high singing, you are Jaira. Why? Because that was just embarrassing for me to do that. You know, I don't, I don't sing, I don't worship that well. You know, God, I know God loves my voice. Um, but I think that would definitely turn people off of Jesus, you know, if I, were to, if I were to worship like that. But I do want to worship Jesus every single second of every single day. So how can I do that without scaring people with my voice? Like, is, is that what it means to be created to worship? Um, you know, so what is the definition of worship? What's the definition of biblical worship? That's, that's the question that, that we're going to be looking at tonight. You know, we want to we see God's heart. What is worship according to God's word? And I fully believe, don't get me wrong, I fully believe that Christians were created to worship. They were created to worship God. For that matter, all humans, I believe, were created to worship God. And either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping something else. If, there's something, if you're not worshiping God, you are worshiping something else, whether you want to admit that or not. And, and in, in the modern kind of church culture, you know, worship is, worship is a pretty common word. Worship is, 
you know, something that we hear about often. And, you know, probably it's so common in the next week or so, you're going to talk about worship or you're going to hear worship or, hey, did you hear that new worship song by Phil Wickham? Or, you know, do you want to come, you know, to a worship service at church with me or whatever it is. Um, but the truth is worship should be a foundational piece for you and for me as a believer. But, but what is worship? If we were created to worship, what is worship? And, and kind of taking, stepping, take, taking a step back and looking at the church kind of at a 30,000-foot view, you know, generally speaking, I believe, and, I, and I'll put myself in here, I believe that most Christians have an inaccurate or I can say at least an incomplete view of what worship is. You know, the worship that they understand oftentimes is, is not correct biblical worship. You know, when I was growing up, um, you know, I got saved probably around 18 or 19 years old. And something that was pretty popular back then was, um, it's kind of like a Christian Woodstock. It's called Spirit West Coast. You know, they have it, you know, around today, but it was really popular back then. And, you know, I went to a few of them. It was, you know, a great, great time to hang out with friends and to, you know, worship with, you know, these different bands. But um, the tagline for this event, and this is on their website, this is what they, this is how they explain their event. They said, the heartbeat of Spirit West Coast is to bring people together to worship God and have fun with one another while enjoying the top worship leaders in Christian music, end quote. You see, I think this is a pretty good description. It's a good generalization of what Christians think about worship today, that it's tied with music, right? When you think worship, you think of songs. When you think of worship, you think of, you know, Maverick City worship or Phil Wickham or Third Day. This is what we think of worship. And if I were to ask you, what is your idea of worship? It's probably going to be tied to music, right? You're going to point to these guys that were up here on stage leading us in song, um, and if you were to ask me when I was a new believer, that's the same thing I would have said. I would have said, you know, Phil Wickham, third day. You know, and, and I don't want to take anything away from these worship artists or the worship nights because, you know, that is worship. Don't get me wrong. This is worship. It's beautiful worship. They're gifted. Um, but, but really, worship is so much more than just music. It's so much more than music. Yes, it is music. It is song. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But let me just say that music is just a drop in the music bucket. Music is just a slice of the worship pie. It's so much bigger than that. And God is worthy of our worship, our full worship. And our desire as Christians should be to worship God. Did you know that's God's desire? God is actually wanting us to worship him. He says in John chapter 4, verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is looking for worshipers. So here we are, right? We're worshiping. We want to worship God. But again, what does that look like? What does it look like to, to live a life of worship? Well, John just said that. He said, when the true worshipers will worship me. 
You know, this implies to me that there's false worshipers out there and that there's a form of false worship that's going on. And, and, and I would even say, sadly, that there's false worship that's going on in churches today. There's false worship that I have actually been a part of in my life as I've been walking with the Lord. And, and again, this is not a message to condemn any of us. It's not. You know, rather, it's a message to challenge us or to encourage us to engage in true worship, to engage in God-honoring worship. So I guess the question for us is, what kind of worship am I giving to God? Is it true worship or is it false worship? And that's really kind of the title of tonight's message is for him. You know, we've been created through him and for him. And we just read in John chapter 4, verse 23, that God is looking for those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. And we want to give God true worship. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look into God's word to see what worship is and how he feels about worship. You know, I'll just say this. If you're looking for answers, if you're looking for truth, Specifically in today's culture where there's, you know, fake news and lies and all this stuff, you will never go wrong when you open up God's word to look for truth. You know, he says in John chapter 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Um, you know, I've actually shared on this kind of topic, this passage of scripture in the past. But, you know, I really feel this is something that, you know, is good for us to be reminded of. You know, as we look at the heart of the Father and, and what he deems as true worship. So, you know, there's, there's a, a phrase or a principle that's common amongst Bible scholars or theologians. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's called the law of first mention. The law of first mention, you know, it basically says, you know, that, that to find the meaning of a word or a doctrine, you have to go and you have to locate the first time that it is used in scripture. You have to study the passages around it. You have to study the context in order to find the full fundamental inherent meaning of what that word or doctrine is. So essentially, the law first mentioned, it sets a precedent for every future use of that word. So if, if the Bible uses the word repentance and you want to know what repentance means, you locate in the Bible where repentance is first used, you study it, you study the context, you find out the meaning of it, and then that meaning will never change every single time it's repeated in scripture. At its root, it will never change. So we're going to look at where worship was first used in scripture. Many of us have probably read and heard the worship, the word worship used in the New Testament, but, but it's, out, it's actually found in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And it's interesting, when God divinely inspired the first use of this word worship, it was used in the context of the story of Abraham. You know, many of us are familiar with the story of Abraham. We know him as the father of faith. Um, we know kind of what's going on. He's the great patriarch. But, but why was he known as the father of faith? It's because he had faith and he believed in God at his word. What, what God said he believed in spite of everything that Abraham going, had going on against him. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 15, we read that God appeared to Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going to make him a father of of many nations. That was God's promise to Abraham. And, and scripture says that Abraham believed God. But the problem was that 
Abraham didn't have any kids. In order to be a father of many nations, you have to have kids, right? And do you know how old Abraham was when he received this promise from God? 35? 40? Abraham was 90 years old when God told him that he was going to make him a father of many nations. And if you know anything about biology, anatomy, physiology, you know, 90 years old is past childbearing years. Um, you know, when I'm 90, I'm not going to be trying to make any kids. You know, I will be lucky if I make it to the restroom in the middle of the night. But nevertheless, God told Abraham that he was going to make him a father of many nations. And Abraham, it says, believed God. You know, there's a lot more to the story that you can go and you can read Genesis chapter 15, 16, 17. But in the end, Abraham was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac was miraculously born. This promised child that God promised Abraham was born when he was 100 years old. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being 90 years old giving birth to a son? But finally, Isaac, this, this promised child, was born. And he was going to bring about this promise of making Abraham a father of many nations. And it was through this child that the father of many nations ultimately was going to bring forth Jesus Christ. You had better bet that Abraham was going to do everything that he could to protect this son, Isaac, right? If, if God's promise hinged on Isaac having kids, he was going to protect Isaac, make sure nothing happened to him at all costs. Because again, God's promise would only become realized if Isaac had kids, who had kids, who had kids, and so on. That's why we commonly say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And before Isaac even ever had kids, before the promise of God was even possible, I want us to kind of take a look at Genesis chapter 22, the first couple of verses, and see what it says. It says, Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. I mean, could you imagine what Abraham was thinking as God was speaking this to him? You know, that's my greatest fear as a father. You know, to, to lose my kids or for my kids to be harmed. And this is God coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, it's time to kill your son. You need to kill your son. You know, you would think Abraham would say, wait, <laughs> what? You're telling me to kill my son? You, you supernaturally gave me a child, Isaac, that was a miracle to bring about your promise. And now you're telling me to go and to kill him? I don't get it. That, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. But listen, that, that would have been my response. That, that maybe would have been many of your responses. But that wasn't Abraham's response. His is found in the next few verses. And again, we're, we're kind of going through this story because this is in the context of the first use of the word worship. So kind of keep that in the back of your mind. In Genesis 22, the next couple of verses, this is Abraham's response to what God says. You know, it's time to kill your son. 
Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and Isaac arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. You know, that's the first time that the Bible uses the word worship. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So the law of first mention, everything that we should know about God's heart with worship is found in these couple of passages. So since we know what worship is now, right, we can close our Bibles up and go home, call the worship team back out here. Some of you are like, wait, what? (laughs) I don't know what... It's still unclear to me, what, what is biblical worship? You know, that's because the description of this biblical worship that, 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 you know, Abraham is talking about is found in the next couple of verses. So let's take a look, starting in verse 5 of 22. So it says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So they began their trek up the mountain with a cajon made of acacia wood, an original Gibson Les Paul the Apostle guitar in hand, and began their sound check when they reached the summit. Then they entered into a worship session that went into the early hours of the morning before heading back down the mountain. So that's biblical worship, right? (laughs) That's not what your Bible says? That's not what mine says either. You know, that's, that's, that is not what their worship session consisted of. You know, when, again, when we hear worship, that's what we think, right? And if it, if it said that, we would kind of be okay with that, right? They went up and they played worship songs all night long and they came back and, you know, that, that was fine. But, but what did their worship session consist of? In verse six, it says, so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife. And the two men and the two of them went together. That was their worship. This testing that we are reading about is about a testing of sacrifice. You know, this is also the first time that the Bible uses the word love. And it's interesting that the first picture of what real love looks like is described in the context of a father and of a son, Abraham and Isaac, and the special relationship that they shared as father and son. Let me ask you this question. How do you think Abraham felt when God told him to kill his son? I mean, what do you think was going through his mind? You know, God already made a promise to make him a father of many nations, but now God is telling him, to kill his son? What was his emotional state? It doesn't say. It's not recorded for us because in the end, Abraham's feelings were irrelevant. It didn't matter how he felt about it because God wanted obedience. And I think that's important for us to remember because the life of faith which we're called to live, the life of faith is not lived in the realm of the emotions. The life of faith is lived in the realm of the will. 
And I can guarantee you that Abraham did not feel like killing his son. He didn't wake up and say, oh, yes, this is exactly what I feel like doing today. But he was going to do it. He was going to follow through. Do you know why? Because his emotions were not his Lord. And I think too many of us are confused by this, that our trust and our love for God is somehow determined or swayed by what's going on around us. Like when things are going well, right? When you have a great job, you know, you're getting paid good, you're healthy, food is on the table. That's when you trust God, right? God, thank you so much for providing. What about when things get stripped away? Do we still trust God? Or what about when you wake up and you just feel good, you feel warm and fuzzy? God, I love you. You're so good, right? It's all based upon how we feel. You know, that is not faith. Faith is not an emotional state. Faith is an action of the will. Faith is a volitional response. Faith is a choice. You choose to believe. You choose to obey. And I think we are guilty of making our emotions our Lord sometimes. You know, I think Satan would have us fall into that trap that we're, we're driven by the way that we feel. We make choices by how we feel and not what God says or not what his word clearly tells us. And did you know that your faith is precious to God? Your faith is precious to God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, it says, the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, God is willing to test your faith. He's willing to test your faith because he knows the power that faith can bring in the life of a believer. And it's true. Even though we don't want it, God will regularly test your faith because of faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so Abraham's faith was tested. And he became the father of faith because it was tested and he passed that test. In verse 10, it said, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For, I, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So how does this story of Abraham and Isaac fit into life's all-time greatest question? What I was created for. You were created for him. You were created to worship him. And we see here through the story of Abraham and Isaac that worship is more than music. It's more than just song. It's more than just lifting up your hands and your voices. In fact, the only melody that I see here and that I hear here in Abraham's story in his worship session is the melody of surrender, of will. He didn't want to do that. And of action, obedience. Abraham chose to worship God despite how he felt, felt because God is worthy of our worship. And the backdrop of their worship session, notice that there were no lights, there were no drums, there was no fog machines, 
no guitar, no skinny jeans, no preacher sneakers, right? Like, none of that's bad. Maybe the preacher sneakers, but the rest of it's okay. But their worship session, look what it included. It was an altar, a knife, a father, and a son. The New Testament gives us a unique insight into what was going on inside Abraham's head during this testing. In Hebrews eleven nineteen, it says, Abraham reasoned that God was able to raise Isaac up even from the dead. Man, that's a man of faith <laughs> who knew that he who promised is faithful and would fulfill his promise, even if it meant raising his son up from the dead. What mattered for Abraham was obedience. What mattered for him was to follow through, to do what he didn't feel like doing. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you individually tonight. You know, I trust that the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to each one of us to reveal to us, you know, what that looks like in our own life. But I think that God's Spirit tonight is, is showing you different things that need to be surrendered. You know, different things that God has been asking you to give up and to not be a part of anymore. And how are you answering him? You know, God is looking for a life that is surrendered to his lordship. And really, that is what it means to worship God. We were created to worship him. And almost 2,000 years later, this exact scene in the same location would play out again with a different father and a different son. But this time, it'd be different. The father would follow through with the execution of his son. And Jesus would die on that cross. And because of what happened at Calvary, what took place on Calvary, because the blood that was shed for you, we have been set free. We've been set free from sin. We've been set free from hell. We've been set free from death. And we've been given a place in glory for all of eternity. Hallelujah. That is God's grace. That's something that we do not deserve, that we couldn't earn, but God freely gave to us. And that is why he is worthy to be worshiped. You know, I want to invite the worship team back out here. I want to leave you guys with um, some lyrics of a song. This is from Matt Redman. Uh, he wrote a song. It's called Heart of Worship. And um, I'm just going to, I sang earlier, so I'm going to read now. But really what he writes in this song sums up exactly what this message was about. You know, so as I read this, just kind of listen to it. Um, but he says, when the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song it's in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. So the answer to life's all-time greatest question, what was I created for, is that you were created to worship him. You were made to worship God. And that doesn't mean you just sing. It can, but it means so much more. 
It means that you live a life of worship. And in the words of a famous philosopher who once said, Jesus, take the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. You know, a life of worship is one that says yes to God even when you don't want to do it. A life of worship is when you choose to do what God is telling you even though your feelings don't want to, even though your emotions are not in line. And that's true worship. You know, that is what God is seeking. Your life as a worshiper should be marked by surrender and obedience. And I have this part in my notes, and I want to try, I want to, try to say this as gentle as possible. But if your life is not marked by surrender and obedience, then you shouldn't be lifting your hands in church. Because God wants more than lifted hands. He wants and he deserves a surrendered heart. You know, the Bible says that Christ became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You know, Jesus, he didn't feel like going to the cross. We know that because his prayer, he says, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to, to save humanity, to redeem mankind, to bring mankind back to you, like, I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to have to die. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Here we can see that Jesus worshiped the Father through surrender and obedience. And if Jesus did this, how can we offer him anything less? Paul says, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.